The Grancidillo School of Business and Management at Pepperdine University proudly presents the Dean's Executive Leadership Series. This podcast invites top business practitioners and thought leaders to share their view on the real world of business. Thank you, Brian. That was uh, very insightful. We appreciate you sharing your perspectives on the interesting experiences that you've been through for the last year or so. I'm going to have a few questions for Brian, and then we're going to open the floor to the audience. And we have about 30 minutes here for discussion and Q&A, so be thinking about what you would like to ask about, and we'll give you that opportunity as we proceed through this discussion as well. Uh, one of the things that you talked about kind of at the end of your remarks was uh, the importance of the regulation, but also the importance of sort of moderation. And I think one of the patterns we've seen in the economy is we sort of regulation has to catch up with the behavior of companies and individuals. So we sort of go down a path and then the regulation tries to pull us back. Uh, how do we get out of that cycle and how do we get businesses to think in more moderate terms without regulation having to always be coming in and pull us back or is that just going to be the nature of the way the system works? Well, I think you can look at areas where uh, the industry had maybe learned lessons that you didn't see repeat themselves. So even though the commercial real estate business is going to be uh, a business which you can read about in the paper is going to have troubles but uh, and defaults and stuff, but if you think about the nature of that compared to the 89, 90, 91 crisis, it, it is very muted compared to that. And that's because the lenders, a lot of lenders in that business went through that cycle and said, I won't do this again. And so I think the difference here is we had a series of, of instruments, derivatives and other types of things, allowed risk to be bottled in a way that nobody had ever seen the other side of. So I think that the, the good news is, is we learn from our past mistakes and we can do that. Um, I think the second thing is the, the creativity uh, that made its way through all the schemes, including the regulatory scheme, allowed too much leverage. And I think that's what you're seeing come out. And if you regulate leverage, you actually can stop the problem. So if somebody can't leverage past a certain point, there's only so much damage they can do themselves. And so, uh, and, and I think that's, that'll help keep it in moderation. And a lot of what Tim Geithner and, 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 uh, uh, and the banking regulators under the Fed are talking about is trying to make sure regulators stays in bottle. I think those are the ways you can keep moderation and enforce moderation. From a company perspective, it's better risk management. Keep looking out, trying to figure out how things relate to each other. Uh, we've learned a lot of lessons. We've learned about counterparty risk. Nobody ever thought that Lehman could go bankrupt and, you know, so thinking about that, so it's, that's more internal risk management. I think if you take all those factors and mix them up, experience, uh, leverage, keeping leverage low, and then people learning how to spot around the corners, it should work. One of the other things you commented on was uh, how the markets, had, where there was, it was, money was too available to companies and there was too much liquidity and, and then we sort of overreacted again and got to the point where companies couldn't get access to capital to continue to operate their businesses. And so we're kind of back at a better point. But capital is still pretty difficult to access, especially for some of the smaller businesses. Where do you see that going? And, and where's the equilibrium going to become in terms of that access to capital, that, particularly with smaller and mid-sized businesses that are still struggling at times to get the access they need? If you, if you, uh, if you divide uh, the capital thought process really into uh, uh, a couple buckets. So the, the, the high yield markets, leverage markets are more robust than they've ever been. The IPO market started to kick up and you started seeing equity come into business. Uh, even the real estate business through the, through the first half of this year drew tremendous equity into it as it repositions the balance sheet. So there's been a lot of activity. So there is capital. 
Now, there are industries that there isn't capital for, and, and, and frankly, because of the operating posture, you can understand that. But I think a big issue that's starting to emerge in the public psyche is the, the concept of uh, lending to small business. So in the first um, quarter, our company did $200 billion of loans. In the second quarter, we did $180-some billion of loans. So we lend a lot of money. The problem that I have, and I have some of the smaller business stuff, and my teammate David Darnell has the stuff that sort of starts with $2 million revenue companies up, is when you look by size, that's where the real default rates are the highest. And so the conundrum is how can you lend into the 20% default rates for small loans under 100000 And a lot of people say you can, but those are tend to find uh, uh, businesses that are just generally economically uh, exposed. So I think between ourselves and the policymakers, we need to come up with some programs to help capital. Um, but I would say that the mistake people are making in some ways is it's all about fundamental demand. So we got to actually have programs that create fundamental demand. Cash for clunkers and things like that did that. I think we need more programs that are funneled to small businesses as they purvey or the, uh, the wares of the work, and that would help. And I think if you can get some combinations going. But it's going to be difficult to get a lot of capital, small businesses. We're renewing a lot. We're giving a lot. But if you look at the quality that people are turning down, they don't have the cash flow to support the loans. It's, it's, it's a fundamental underwriting decision. We did a podcast earlier, so you'll be able to listen to more conversation with Brian. But one of the things that we talked about in that was sort of the global uh, financial markets and the global banking markets. And I would like for you to share with this group, because you didn't really touch on that in your remarks, kind of your view of that and what the challenges in that arena are, um, because I think it opens up some interesting thinking and questions that some of you may have uh, on the global perspective, even beyond what we've been talking about here. So share some of your thoughts on that and what those challenges are. Well, I think if you think about the, 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 what happened around the globe in the last uh, 12 to 24 months, you have countries who have uh, banking systems that are bigger than they are. So that's the case in Iceland was the most extreme case. So as you think about reconciling that going forward, it's going to be very interesting. So you're seeing the UK's response to that with the EU is to actually um, divide up some of their banks, um, which are much more consolidated than US banks, but uh, doing that. You're seeing um, you're seeing a, a view that maybe uh, they should divest some of their international operations and concentrate their capital locally. And so I think that the, the core challenge is if you're in a country like Iceland, just to use the example, and your banks are doing business all over the world, and yet your citizens have the deposits there, um, how do you factor all that in if something goes wrong? And I think that jurisdictional scheme doesn't, doesn't exist. There's no scheme. It's individual countries regulated. There's no overall reaching scheme. So I think between the EU and the United States and, and various Asian organizations, we're going to have to figure out a way that companies can operate around the world because the world capital needs to be liquid and figure out a way to regulate them. Otherwise, left to their own devices, what you're starting to see is put all your capital in my country and I'm fine. And that's going to make a very inefficient use of, of, of the system and, and actually create, uh, like in Lehman, where you saw that the UK just ran and tried to grab the money. And that's not helpful to how you resolve these things. So we need a scheme to regulate and a scheme to resolve and a scheme, frankly, to make sure that citizens of a lot of countries don't get hurt by the international operations of their bankings. And how likely is it that we'll come up with that kind of a scheme in any short order, given the complicated nature of all the parties involved in, in making that happen, both on the private side and on the public side? It's, it's going to be difficult. They're working on it. The, the first thing to do is avoid everybody running to their own corner and trying to hide from each other. And that's kind of what's going on a little bit now, is that people are putting up. So we're putting our capital ratios for financial services in this country up to level that nobody in the world could comply with. So when I go to Japan or Europe and talk to financial institution peers um, that have 25% of the capital we did and they're nearly ours, they could never come close. And so 
so that's what we've decided to raise our capital levels. Well, the, that's not that good because that means the other people can't participate. So right now everybody's running for their own corners. There's a lot of work going on, but I think this is actually a much more important issue for us than we think as a country because our banking system to support our economy actually needs to continue to grow. And that's one of the issues going on now is if we can't continue to grow our banking system, or we've, we've got to finance the economy some way. And so I think we need not to go to our four corners and shape things. I'm going to open the floor to questions. And as you have a question, stand up so the audience can see and hear you. And let us know your name and what company you're with. So who would like to start off with the first question for Brian? Please. Uh, Rakesh Mishra with Farmers Insurance. So um, Brian, you talked about um, the recovery and, and really leading in a crisis mode. And one of the things I'm curious, do organizations, do they need to rethink their strategies, their core competencies, what it takes to win the game? Because if you think about crisis, uh, even now going forward, we're sort of assuming that things will be back to the way they, the way they were two, three years ago. And maybe they won't. If the game has changed, uh, especially if savings rate has increased among consumers and it's going to stay that way, um, what, I mean, should that be a key part of leading into the future? It's not about crisis, so let's, let's sort of assume this is the new world and what is it going to take for us to win in this new world? Should that be part of what executives need to be thinking about looking forward? Well, I, I was in Japan uh, six months ago and I was talking to a, a major uh, bank and we were talking about the savings rate in Japan and I said, we need your savings rate but not tomorrow. And, and because if, if our, our consumers have fueled the economic growth, not only in our country, but around the world. And if we all start saving like we've done, that pullback is actually takes a lot out of the economy. So we need to manage this carefully over time. But I think your point about the implications of a unemployment level that could stay above 5% for a substantial period of time, a, uh, um, a savings rate that could take money sort of into the system and a little bit out of the, out of the system of, le of leverage and then grow, uh, buying things and creating an economy. Um, the number of people who, who, under the current rules, won't be eligible for credit because of the charge-offs and things like that. So those are all going to be factors that we've got to think, think through as to how that happens. And then, frankly, the structure in the financial services industry, at least, is much different now because you have four or five major uh, uh, um, companies that are actually going to have to compete more like a Coke-Pepsi competition than the traditional way they competed years ago where it was more geographic-based and stuff. So all those sort of factor into it. The more general lesson is you've got to look at your customers and follow your customers. And they're going to tell you what they need. And right now our customers, uh, the Americans, are saying, I want to be more conservative. I want to stretch every dollar, and I want to do this. And I think every industry has to think that through. And, uh, and we'll see what happens over time, and their behavior will change over time. But right now that's where they are. And I think that's how you've got to be competitive is to follow what your customers ask you to do. Kyle Murphy, president of SwitchStream and uh, adjunct faculty at uh, Pepperdine. Uh, with the repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act in, what, uh, 99, it allowed, or, or a few years before that, it allowed the risk neutral of commercial banks to start doing business or be tied together with the really risk-seeking of investment banks. Do you think that was one of the causes of why we got to where we are, uh, and a lot of banks, particularly commercial banks, being so uh, damaged by over-leveraging? I, I don't... I don't think so because I don't think it's the commercial banking system that actually failed because of the um, integration with the, with the securities business. The securities companies actually 
have all become banks because they need the stable funding and stuff. So I think that's a, a too easy an answer to the question, which is if we have a corporate customer and they want us to uh, provide them access to capital markets, that has to happen. There, shouldn't, there doesn't need to be a separate industry. The analysis for good underwriting is the same, whether it gets distributed or whether it gets kept. And so I think, I think to blame it on Glass-Steagall repeal, which remember, it was largely broken down way before that. Um, and so I think that, that that's a convenient uh, idea. One of the challenges we have to have in the regulatory environment is to regulate the problem and not the institutions and think about the problem. So if you put it in the context of consumers, if as a matter of social policy we think somebody shouldn't buy a home without a down payment, you got to regulate that activity. You can regulate banks, but they didn't make, they weren't in the subprime business by and large, right? So, so you have to think about that. Same with the securities industry. You can regulate derivatives, but on the other hand, who makes the derivatives should be the question. If you want to regulate derivatives and bring them to the exchanges, that's what you ought to do for transparency and settlement and things like that. So I'm not sure the Glass-Steagall makes a difference in that. I think it's really figuring out where the activities are. And the securities firms had, the ex had much more leverage in the banking system at the time, and the foreign banks had much more leverage in the U.S. So this isn't saying who was right or who was wrong. I just don't know if that's the, the right answer. The right answer is what activities cause a problem and regulate them no matter where they show up. So find the P in the, in, under the mattress and say, we're regulating that, not let's try to regulate the mattresses on the way down. And that's a mistake I think we can make is because we can go to the entities and not find the P. Hey, Brian, good evening. Uh, Victor Alvarez, Wells Fargo, and uh, Ambo student. Uh, with the, you mentioned that the small business segment is really the one that's uh, had the highest default rate and certainly worked in that uh, segment of the industry. I have seen the same. So I really have two questions. Uh, in part, uh, the first one would be, do you think that some of the better uh, or the more financially sound companies within that segment are looked at differently, but just because of the small business uh, nature. And second, do you think introducing maybe some sort of a, uh, audited tract, um, kind of like the larger corporations would be more uh, needed or something that's needed within that market just to uh, help them uh, gain some capital? Um, I, think, I think we, we as an industry need to keep making fundamental underwriting decisions on the one, but make sure that we're really looking at every application for better, lack of a better term or every request for credit very carefully and making sure that we're not, we're not being too conservative right now. Um, if you have an, uh, a consumer-led uh, recession, which we've had, and, and that is affecting a lot of categories of small business, the, the categories around re, uh, residential construction, which is driving the economy now has come down to a much smaller position. It was driving restaurants and things like that. It was driving retail sales. Uh, and allowed that to happen. I, I think the, the lesson learned is if you look at, we have a, a group that finances uh, you know, dentists and doctors, no default problem at all. Because that was core to the, you know, their need to make money, therefore they were going to pay to finance their practice to buy the equipment and stuff. So I, I, I think it's, it's customer selectivity on the lending side, but it's also being realistic about the type of things that go on when you have 10% unemployment and, and the dropping consumer spending and housing values we've had and not try to cure that problem now, but not try to, not try, try to cure the, the excess that created that problem now, but actually figure out how to get some money in the hands of small businesses. We're working on some ideas to do it, but it's, it is difficult because a lot of the businesses that people would like to get financing to are businesses which just don't do well now. And so we see the failure because they don't have the debt service, frankly. And so that, that's, 
that's something we need to keep working through because it's very important to kind of get the economy going in the next step. And so we're working on, on some programs and some thoughts and hopefully we'll be able to do some stuff. Yes, Bill. Bill Ayos, South Coast Engineering, a consulting firm that works with uh, small businesses on strategy. Uh, I'd like to come back to your comments on leadership and communication. Uh, so I want to put a, a phrase out first, and that is, the less you know, the more you make up. Right. And the intent of that phrase is, especially in an organization, if you're not getting information about what's going on, what the objectives are, and things are bad, you tend to create an image of what's bad that's probably much worse than reality. So getting that communication of the workforce is extremely important. So you illustrated using why and using your management structure to flow down information. What I'm curious about and what I've seen as a failing in a lot of companies is what do you use as a check and balance to make sure your message actually gets down to the people in the workforce and that what you intended to communicate was being properly heard? Well, there's a couple different thoughts on that. Um, first, the, the, the one of the things of a, uh, of a leader at any time is to actually be able to visualize everything you ask your company to do or ask your team to do to the person who actually has to do it. And one of the ways you, I think, acquire that skill is to actually go out and talk to people who actually do it a lot. And they will tell you right away if they think you're off course. The, the toughest part of, of getting told the truth, for lack of a better term, is actually the intervening layers. It's never the people who actually have to do it. And I found that no matter what, I've, I've had investment bankers, I've had bro financial advisors, I've had tellers, I've had proof operators, which is the people who process all those checks. I've had all different kinds of people in, in my life, and it's the one truism is the people who actually do the work will tell you what you're doing right or wrong. So one is to go out and talk to them, and that's so you can hear your message. Um, the second is to actually make sure that people, uh, that the team that's in the uh, middle management, for lack of a better term, understands it is their job and understands that uh, as we do associate listening and stuff, we will figure out if they're doing their job well. And so we can go down to 10 people to tell you whether your associates feel free that they can speak their mind or whether your associates feel free that they're, they understand the company strategy. So we, we test this every year. We go back and survey our associates. And so we can pinpoint it to where it is. Um, and so I, I think you have to have processes like that. One, you have to listen and actively listen as a senior manager and have people who have that skill working for you. And then you have to have formal processes where people can give feedback. Um, but it is a challenge to make sure it gets through. And we use a lot of, in the world we are today, you also have just an ability to put something out and distribute it through the 300,000 people like that. So uh, we have you know, the intranets and the intranets in the company and stuff. And uh, so we used a thing we called Media Buzz, which is during this crisis was largely just to arm our people with the facts or not the facts about what might be written about us on a given day. And, and the associates here will tell you that it gives them a great ability to at least say, I understand what, what the media said, and I understand what our point of view is. Um, sometimes that gets through the customer, sometimes not. So you can have those techniques, too. But I think, you come back from a leadership perspective, it's your ability to listen or to facilitate listening in a way that just have, no matter how big the company does, you have to be able to do. So kind of in a follow-up to that, uh, and you touched on it a little bit in there, there's clearly the communication with your employees in the organization and making sure that's getting down clearly. But you began to touch on how you get the accurate message out to your customers and to the public. And, and with all the media that there's been around what's gone on in the financial service and banking industry, some of it accurate probably, some of it not accurate, how do you get that message out? And there's obviously a lot of skepticism and cynicism in the, 
in the broader community around what's gone on in financial services. So how do you manage that side of the communication, that side of, uh, of kind of uh, managing the message that gets out there? Um, it, it is difficult now because the media is not going to listen. So if you think you, winning the war in the media is an impossible task on a given day, just because uh, there's so much information, so much going on. But, but the, the idea is ultimately your associates know what you're doing as a company and know what you're doing. And, and if you communicate directly to them, they're comfortable that they know the facts. And so, you know, in the depths of this in March, uh, when our stock price got down to under $3, you know, a lot of, we were lumped in that we were undercapitalized, at, you know, this and that and the other thing. In fact, our capital at that time was the highest percentage it had been in our history in some cases. And so you just sit there and publish the facts and said that, you know, we, uh, you know, here's the ratios and here's the things. And so it was an odd thing to be talking to people like uh, financial advisors or uh, who are obviously financially very sophisticated, but also to, uh, you know, people who wouldn't have that as their background to talk about capital ratios. But we had to because, I mean, you kept saying we were undercapitalized and it just it wasn't close to being true, but at some point you have to put out the facts. So uh, you can't, you know, when, the, when the move's going on, um, you can't let the press shape what your associates think, you have to shape it, which is both of your points, and I agree with that. But you have to do it in a way that people can understand it, in a speed that people can get absorb it. But that's that's what we did. We just and Ken went out and uh, uh, did a lot of uh, public appearances in a way that just and just to make sure people knew that we were here and fighting, and and that and that helped stabilize the team. And the team here would all agree with that, I think. And uh, um, but it was, uh, but it wasn't that you're going to get the person to write a paper story that said. The opposite, because it's just too hard to figure all that out. Hi, my name is uh, Eric Kim. I'm part of the 15-month program currently. And uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to switch gears a little bit, just me as being a student currently and aspiring to be in the position that you are in today. If you could tell us, you know, maybe speaking on behalf of some of the other students here, how you got to be where you are, if it's something you always wanted to do. And if you could tell, some, give somebody like me advice, especially when it comes to management in the financial services industry, what tangible steps that I can take now to prepare myself and hit the ground running uh, next year? I started to answer that question a little, a little cynically, saying, you really want to do what I do right now? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what, I do, I have a, what I do is, is and I, I feel privileged to do it every day. So here, here I, I speak often to the groups of leadership development programs we have, and everybody always asks this question. And often lawyers ask me this question, how'd you get to do this? And that's one thing I'll tell you, if you try to plan your career out 10, 20 years out, you will, be, you will be in the position you constantly disappoint yourself. Because no matter what you think's gonna happen, it will happen somehow different. So what are the keys to be successful? Never turn down an assignment, because if your boss thinks it's important, it's probably important. So never say, I just won't, I can't do it. Now leave aside work-life balance, you gotta manage your life, but never turn down an assignment. When you move uh, from job to job, make sure you do the job you're in and not the job you used to do, which is for first level managers, one of the critical mistakes. Third is learn as much as you can and have a passion for what you do so that people can see it and they can feel that you're gonna add value. And fourth is just don't be that inflexible that when something comes up, just do it, you know, and, and not be worried about it. Because if you're really worried about it and you really say, I'm gonna figure out what I'm gonna do in, in 2014 and 15 and 16, it just isn't gonna happen. So be flexible, be intelligent, learn, go out and do things, learn a lot, grab everything you can, as I always refer to it, get a lot of flight time, get a lot of hours in the air, um, and then uh, and let the things shape and make your decisions. And the last thing is make sure you work with people you like. 
because it's work. It is work, and it would be much more enjoyable if you work with people you like. So make sure you work with people you like. And so I, that's the range of things I give you. Uh, if you want me to say go to law school and then do this, I'm sending you on a course that was that's not what you should do. Tell them to get their MBA and yeah. then do it. That would be a better answer. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, so so don't don't just let it happen. So Brian, when you look back on your career, were there people along the way that were really significant to helping you learn these things or helping you make good choices? And maybe who were some of those people and what were the lessons you learned from them? I've, I've, I've had, Beyond I've, your big brother, Kevin, yeah, you can save that, that for was, later. Um, we had, uh, you know, if you think about different CEOs I've worked for, they had different views and attitudes and, and how they, how, what formed them. And so you learn from, from some of them real customer focus. You learn from other ones the toughness and the don't believe your own BS so much. You learn from other ones uh, combinations of discipline and how to manage across the organization. So I, I'd say, you know, from a mentor perspective, I was lucky. I had a, when I was a lawyer, I had a, a wonderful partner um, named Duncan Johnson for years that let me do more than he should have. Um, and then when I went into business, the same thing happened uh, with it, uh, Terry Murray and Chad Gifford and Ken Lewis, the three CEOs I worked for. So. Um, people are always willing to take a risk and you have to learn about that. I think people discount how much you learn from the people that actually work for you. And so uh, through my career, one of the things people would say is you've surrounded yourself with all these very young, bright, energetic people. And then their conclusion was they would do what I said. I actually surround myself with very young, bright, energetic people who beat the heck out of me and never would do what I said unless I was so convincing that they had been worn out that they'd finally give in. And that's, that's something I've always appreciated. So if you said who, there would be people who would be critical to my career and success who work for me, and, and, and a lot of them still work in our, most of them still work in our company somewhere else or somewhere else. But the key about them was is they, maybe they just weren't politically astute enough uh, in, their, in their careers that they were willing to let me have it. And that's, uh, and that's something that you gotta have. And because, it's hard to get an honest read from people, and that's what I value. So someone like Fung uh, Lo here is over here, who's worked for me for now five or six years, actually she technically doesn't work for me now, would tell me when I first met her what we were doing right and wrong, and that's critical. And so surround yourself with people who are smart, and then, but give them an atmosphere where they can actually tell you where to go. And then at some point you gotta lay the rule down, this is the rules and this is what we're gonna do, make the decisions, that doesn't mean, but, but you gotta have that input and that spirit. That says a lot about your style, too, that you are willing to put people around you that will disagree and you'll listen to that. I mean, that's one of the failings of many leaders is that they don't want people around them disagreeing with them or telling them that they're doing something wrong or that they have a different opinion. And so certainly that's a, a quality that a leader needs. You, one of the things I learned from one of the CEOs, and as you get more senior, is you spend more and more time listening and less time talking and doing. And in that process, you have to listen with a knife. And that's one of the challenges as you get, in other words, you have to listen in a way that actually can cause a result and, and be very sharp edged and listen. You don't say a word, but you have to listen in a way that you can actually absorb and make sure things happen. Um, and I was taught that by one of the CEOs I work for, and he always marveled me because he I said, you have patience that I've never could believe you have, because I'd seen him outside a formal business meeting. He said, but if I don't listen, I'm not gonna really learn what they're trying to say. And I probably know the answer I'm gonna to get to in a lot of this stuff, because he'd been vast experience and worked in all the business. But if I don't listen, I'm not gonna really figure out if I'm right. So you learn to listen more and you learn, you have to listen more. Uh, and something that I can do better every day and, and, and learn from, but, it, but you listen with a purpose. It's not just listening.
Um, who's smart, who's good, who's giving the right ideas, how they're thinking about the ideas. When they're challenged by one of their associates, how do they react? Do they have the buy-in of the people they need to do it? You know, and you can get all that without saying a word. And it takes incredible patience, and believe me, it takes incredible patience. Um, um, and I've had to develop it because I'm one of eight kids, and you spoke fast and you spoke a lot because the next person was going to come in and speak over top of you. And so to learn how to be that patient is taking a lot of work. Do we have any more audience questions? I want to conclude with another question. So let's do one more from the audience here, and then I have a, a question I would like to conclude with. Carla Roach, I'm a doctorate student in the organization and leadership program and an associate as well. And you mentioned uh, work-life balance a little bit. And how would you define work-life balance, and is it attainable at your level? Um, I'm probably not the best person to ask that, because uh, um, in the sense that you, that's a measure which you may think you have balance, but you have to ask your family. And I'm lucky that I have a wonderful wife and three wonderful kids that, that somehow what I do is I work and I spend time with them. And so, and that's, and that's the decision I made. Um, so, you know, where our clients say, well, they could, you could play golf or go to a sporting event, and I just, I focus on trying to do that with them. And uh, so whether I maintain that balance right or not, I know that I only have a couple choices, and I try to make them wisely in terms of where you spend your time. Uh, Work-life balance and the progress, of especially uh, females in financial services, is something that, I, that I've worked with my team in the global, I'm the chairman of the Global Diversity Inclusion Council for Bank of America. And it's a wonderful thing and I've been doing it for about five years and we're one of the best companies in diversity by statistics and everything, but we really focus on, we've moved from statistics to inclusion. So can we be the bank of opportunity for every associate? Can they do what they want? And a core issue around uh, women is how to have people work and take, uh, w women and actually more and more with men, with parents and stuff, but this whole issue of on-ramp, off-ramp and, and, and getting a balance where people can actually not only work and have work-life balance, but also have abilities to move in and out of career path and maintain a career path. Um, and, and that's something we're working on hard as a company and, and uh, uh, because it's a challenge and because of behaviors that have been built up over the years are not uh, conducive to that. And so uh, um, we have, uh, we've spent a lot of time and I think um, we've, uh, we've gotten better at it, and, but yet we have a lot of work to do and we'll continue to work on it. But when it comes to work-life balance, I think it's one of those things that you just have to, if you're not comfortable, if you're fighting it, you're not doing the right thing. If you go home and you're comfortable with how you spent your day and your family's comfortable with how you spent your day and you can get it and that works, you're comfortable. And that's going to be a different answer for every single person. And, but if you're torturing yourself, you've got to step back because it will affect your performance over time. You can't go to work um, knowing that you've somehow done damage the most important part of your life at the same time and, and because of how you're, how you're behaving or how, I mean, how you're working and stuff like that. So I think that balance is actually good. And I, I try to coach it into our team. And you often get, well, how do you handle it? And the answer is, you know, do as, do as I say, not as I do. You've got to figure out what works for you. I want to conclude with a, a question uh, that ties into something that I, you talked about in your introduction that we haven't talked about yet, but you do a lot of service work in the community or try to embed that in what you do. And in, in the mission statement of the university, we talk about preparing students for lives of purpose, service, and leadership. And so talk a little bit about uh, why you think that service piece of what you do in the nonprofit world is important. and and maybe even what advice you would give either to the individuals here or to companies 
about how they sort of embed that even more fully in the experience that they have? Well, in our company, we embedded um, the Team Bank of America, which is the name we give to our volunteer efforts, is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of hours. And then you get to associates who serve on nonprofit boards and volunteer their time without putting it through the system. So it's something we value and something you know, most companies of, of, uh, of value and, and, and sponsor. But um, I, th I think the we've all gotten more from society than we probably deserve as a as look at all of us. And, and, and so it, it, the challenge is we gotta, we gotta give back in a natural way that's natural for you. So I pick things that I know I can actually impact. So I, I don't sit on opera boards or something like that because I'm one of 20 some members and what happens? I, I, I've picked things I could actually impact because frankly, if I was gonna spend the time, I wanted to see if I could actually help. And uh, so, you know, and other people make the choice a different way and that's fine, but, it, it, but I've always believed that this shouldn't be something you do, it should be something you wanna do. And, uh, and the w reason why I do it's because something kicks an interest up or something gets me started and I get into it and try to do something. But it is, it is something that we value at our company. It's something um, our leaders value. Um, but it's, it's something you can talk about too much, but the reason why that you should do it is for the right reasons and, and then do whatever turns you on. And, 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 and when you go to that work-life balance, you know, the, the idea of seeing you know, a bunch of kids in a, in a small setting that, you've been able, that, that the team has been able to help and you've been able to give your little part is, is wonderful. Um, and, and so that just makes what you do uh, worthwhile. I always remember those of us that sit on nonprofit boards um, and you see when the economy hits a nonprofit and how they have to take out people, just like we do all the time in big business and businesses. And you just go home and you say, this is unbelievable that this you know, $5 million enterprise has taken out you know, $200,000 in compensation. And it, it's so gut-wrenching to go through that, that, that you gotta remember they're companies too, they're businesses too, and, and to help them guide them is good. So I do it because it's what I like to do, but I do it where I can have an impact that actually either my advice or my time or my energy or, or my support structure I can bring them through the company and through colleagues that share the same things can be helpful. Other people choose other things and that's fine. But I think it's incumbent upon all of us to do it and, uh, and it will make your life more rich and therefore have more purpose. Well, I think that's a good note to conclude on tonight, but we really appreciate you. you spending the evening with us, Brian. And, uh, thank you so much. We have a small token of appreciation for your time with us. So thank you very, very much. Thank you. Well, we appreciate so much all of you joining us tonight. We hope it was very valuable and beneficial to you. You will have two ways that you can hear uh, Brian again or more of Brian through uh, the podcast that we did earlier, which we even touched on a few different topics in this. It will be available on iTunes University in the next few days. And then the video of this presentation will be on YouTube University, so you can uh, watch this again if you'd like to hear more of this. Certainly share it with others as well if it would be valuable to you. And we hope we see you again on December 3rd at Fox Studios for Jim Giannopoulos. So thank you for being here and have a safe trip home.